so you have uh, a, a situation that is really unique in terms of the the land before us. You know, a, a, a someone who's been in power for a very long time, someone who is, you know, hated by, uh, you know, everyone around them. Uh, and then they, uh, you know, have to actually have uh, that conversation about when they're supposed to depart the, the fray and, uh, you know, step away from everything. And, you know, it's a, it's a difficult conversation to have. But it's also one that is inevitable. You know, time comes uh, for us all, and then you have to decide which way to go. So where do you think that Bill Belichick should go in this offseason now that he doesn't have a job, gentlemen? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, do, do I have it right that he – it wasn't Atlanta, because I think that might still happen, but he had two interviews with another team. Why can't I remember who it was? But he had two interviews, and they did not offer him the job. Yeah, no, no, um, the, it was Atlanta, but yes, they, they was Atlanta. Uh, yeah. So, no, no, I just, uh, I think that the comparisons between Mitch McConnell and Bill Belichick um, are are very strong. Um, in that, if he's if you're on his team and you're close to him, then you know his stubborn, irascible, you know, difficult to get along with nature is something that you view as an asset, and if you're uh, across from him on anything uh even if you're one of his former acolytes even if you're sort of in the tree um you hate that man to the nth degree <laughs> and it's it's one of the things that i think is is interesting just about the dynamics of this particular moment that you know there are all these people out there who have spent the last 10 to 15 years absolutely hating mitch mcconnell and the way that he ran the senate gop uh and yet their mood at this moment having talked to a number of senators over the past 48 hours um, is not one of like a bullient, you know, you know, gosh, I'm so glad he's gone. It's, it's more like uncertainty. Like, what does this mean for the division? You know, how does this play out? And without him there, is this even football? So so (laughs) the question is like, who is, who is his, Tom Brady. Is it Leonard Leo? That's the that's the first name that came to my head. That's kind of an obscure, well, obscure I, I, one. But. I think the difference is that, you know, is that McConnell, if you look at his really his period of influence, which has been, I guess it was what, following the 2006 election, I think is when he became mm-hmm. the Republican leader. Um, you know, he, you had a you had a weakened George W. Bush by then. Um, then you rolled into, you know, the Trump administration where you had a bunch of people that were learning the job, including the president for the first time. And, you know, McConnell, I mean, it was like if Bill Belichick was out there, you know, you know, taking snaps from under center too. that, you know, McConnell wasn't just you know, an architect, but was a key player on the field for a lot of these victories. Um, and yeah, I, I think it really is kind of a, uh, an end of an era in both ways. Both of them are also first ballot, you know, hall of famers. Um, and whatever criticisms you have of of either, um, I mean, I think the fact that they drew to draw so much hate, um, particularly from you know their, their opposing teams, I think is a testament. I mean, Ben, in your in your Twitter profile or your X profile, you know, you have the the thing of you can tell a man's vices by his friends, his virtues by his enemies. You know, Mitch McConnell as a as a political leader had a you know has a lot of enemies and. You know, to me, you know, it speaks to his willingness to just sort of grind away on stuff um, and, and deliver a lot of wins for Republicans that may not have been the the flashy stuff that would get news coverage, but that fundamentally realigned 
you know, big parts of you know American um, you know civic and legal life. But it's especially late in his career, Belichick, especially the last few seasons with Mac Jones, Belichick was accused by Patriots fans of, and there was some reporting even to the effect by Patriots fans that because of disagreements over how Jones should be used and how long they should stick with him, Belichick essentially gave, you know, the Kraft family and ownership of the team exactly what they asked for and basically rode jones into the ground and into multiple losing seasons um and you know that that was just at the tail end of his career but mcconnell has been subject to that exact criticism for almost the entire period of his leadership from his own team from his own fans and it has reached a absolute fever pitch here now that the you know the end is end is nigh um you know all of the kind of maga types and all and and and, you know even it's an even bigger group than just that you know, say the same thing. I mean, you know, highlighted by Gates and and Mike Lee, um, you know, and and some of the sort of federalist set. But you know, McConnell has been subject to you know you you can judge a man by his enemies. I mean, he's got as many enemies in the Republican Party, you would you would believe from at least the the tweets as he does in the Democratic Party. Well, so I, 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 let let me just step back for a second and say basically, you know, there there's different kinds of enemies. There there's enemies who disagree with you. Because they think tactically and strategically your approach is lacking um, and that, you know, you should open up the Senate to behave more like it has traditionally uh, and not like it has under his own uh, leadership. I mean, but um, that, and, started, that started with even Reed. I mean, I think to yes, that no, I, I, I agree. I agree. Um, but I would say that basically, you know, you've had uh, sort of an in-kind response. Uh, from the you know the Republican side versus the Democratic side, um, and then there are people who are at war with you over disagreements about policy, which I think is different. Um, you know the, the the policy argument that I would make about about McConnell is that he very much is uh, a, and I don't know that he's going to be the last one, but I, I think that you can brand him as such. He might be the last fusionist leader in the Reagan era sense. Um, you know, he came to uh, the Senate in, in 1984. He was the one GOP flip, by the way, that year uh, in Kentucky, and he had not held federal office beforehand. He was a he was a local elected official uh, who beat an incumbent Democrat senator by about 5,000 votes. He arrived in the Senate at uh, the ripe age of 42. Uh, and uh, built his way from there, having been someone who was considered fairly moderate on his way up, uh, who then would be branded as being this, you know, evil obstructionist by the left uh, and being this absolute thorn in the side of the populist conservative movement, uh, you know, in the 2010s and beyond. And I think that one of the things to understand about him is that his his stubbornness was was constant and sometimes it was a huge asset. And sometimes, uh, you know, I think he got in his own way and he picked some fights, uh, many of which he, I think, lost, uh, frankly, within primary battles and the like uh, that were ultimately, you know, uh, he would he would potentially regret. You know, I mean, it's it's ridiculous to think, um, you know, looking backwards uh, that people like not just Lee, but, you know, Rubio, Ted Cruz, others would not be in the body today. If McConnell had had his way, you know, certainly not Rand Paul, who he developed a good working relationship with, you know. And so I think one of, one of the things that, you know, we have to consider is that 
the the assumptions that were built into him from from the get go um, are really ones that didn't that you know have been rebutted to certain extents uh, or shifted over the course of of his lifetime in the Senate. Yeah, so I know John, you probably have a lot of thoughts on this. We we could and maybe we should talk about <laughs> Mitch McConnell the whole the whole episode. I know we have primaries to get to, but I I, I just want to say a, a few quick things. I think basically, Ben, you're right. I wouldn't call him the last fusionist. I think it's a more complicated question. I definitely think he's the last Senate institutionalist who will be leader of the Republican Party in the Senate for a while. Um, even if one of the Johns gets that uh, nod, and we can talk about that, you know, there, it's going to come with a kind of McCarthy-like pressure from the younger and more populist and more Kevin, to be clear. <laughs> Kevin, yeah, I assume so, so, you mean not 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 the other McCarthy. <laughs> yeah, not the oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, not the yeah, not that McCarthy. But you know, it's gonna it's gonna come with a lot of those strings attached. And I just don't think there's anybody left with the kind of singular stubbornness, as you put it, uh, Ben, to maintain that kind of thing. So I think what you're gonna see is the the houseification of the Senate and the end of the filibuster for sure. I mean, it was always it's been on life support for years. And I think you'll see the two bodies become more interchangeable in their politics and in their structural workings. There'll still be a couple little oddities that mark the Senate differently, given their sort of constitutional roles. But I think you'll see the melding of those two bodies. And then the two things I would say about McConnell himself and his leadership, that I've, I've, I've written about this over the years, is that, you know, M McConnell cared about people, you know, especially now, Mike Lee, you know, has been on a Twitter rampage about mcconnell for a long time and um you know he, his view that mcconnell's a secret democrat or that you know today he was talking about how he you know he only he rewarded people who were personally loyal to him and punished people who were personally disloyal to him now, you guys might disagree i do not know and have never interacted with a politician who cares less about personal loyalty than mcconnell i mean at least in the sense that that mike lee is talking about it in my view mcconnell cared about two things to the exclusion of everything else. And that was incumbency and electability in the service of maintaining a majority in the U.S. Senate and protecting the Senate GOP caucus. I think anything you could criticize him on, either policy-wise or strategy-wise, was as a result of his you know, singular obsession with that cluster of issues. So I think that's just a really weird way of reading McConnell's ruthlessness. And of course, he was and is a ruthless leader. He's not some idealist. I think everyone agrees on that. But it's a weird reading of, of his ruthlessness, and I think a very wrong one. And then the last thing I'll say about him is, is that whether you want to talk about, um, you know, again, strategy or policy, what McConnell realized, and it's not a very happy realization, is that the United States Congress doesn't make policy all that much anymore and doesn't legislate and doesn't control the purse uh, or the regulatory state to the extent that it, it used to. And so what he did and where all of his victories came from were in things that were ancillary to the core functions of Congress. And that's, you know, whether it was him stocking, you know, uh, regulatory bodies with, you know, conservative sleeper agents and fighting the, the the deep state from within, which he, you know, made great success of in the Obama administration, whether it was stifling, you know, liberal policy goals, which he did, you know, to great effect in the Obama administration, um, or whether it was stacking the courts with good judges, which he obviously did both substantively and with his kind of brilliantly ruthless procedural, you know, um, 
you know, trickery. Um, he understood that what the Senate does and what Congress does now, you know, its power resides mostly outside the traditional kind of lawmaking um, that we all think of as kind of Mr. Smith goes to Washington or or uh, Schoolhouse Rock. And, you know, it opens him up to a lot of criticism because people want big wins. And I think even when we talk about his wins, you're hard pressed to say, what are the, you know, five pieces of landmark legislation that that McConnell, you know, ushered through the body. But that is not the same as saying that he wasn't a remarkably successful leader, which I think he obviously was. So I think, you know, before I, one thing I think I would probably take a little bit of issue is I don't know that was somebody that doesn't care about loyalty. I, I don't think that you would get there without having loyalty to your team or to your guys. I think McConnell didn't care what people think about him. In fact, I know he from from former you know, McConnell aides that like his superpower was like he he didn't care if you liked him. And I think in, in, in this day and age, that is a tremendous asset to have. And I think it's sort of playing that out. The other difference. And I, I still think that the Senate is going to be a different animal than the House is that there's no motion to vacate. You know, and there's all, all you need to continue being the floor leader is. A majority of of your folks in your conference or your caucus that wants you to be that person. Um, so you just you're structurally just much safer. Mm. Um, and and I think a lot of the people that rail on him was probably you know that uh, there was a great profile um, maybe like five or six maybe longer than that five or six years ago seven years ago uh, the New York Times Magazine did that was actually I thought unbelievably fair and I thought played, painted a pretty good picture of of McConnell. And his entire rise through Republican Senate ranks was just being a grinder. And it was originally on campaign finance stuff where no one else wanted to stick their neck out because no one wanted to be, you know, the guy that was for money in politics or for, you know, whatever, you know, whatever people wanted to say about it. And McConnell thought it was wrong. And I think, you know, McConnell in a lot of ways was probably one of the early, you know, earlier, you know, and obviously the nature of the threat has changed, but earlier, at least in our political lifetimes champions of free speech. Um, and in the case of campaign finance stuff, probably in the, one of the most fundamental ways. And I think you can say there's maybe things that should be different, but I think that uh, you know McConnell's leadership there and through lawsuits and through the courts as a litigant um, in some of the, you know, the overturning big chunks of campaign finance laws uh, was important. Well, look, let me, let me just wrap this up because we do have some uh, primary situations to talk about, but the way I kind of think about this is, without question, he's been the most important Republican politician of uh, the last 15 years who came from the traditional hierarchy of Republicanism. Now, maybe that's not the last fusionist, um, but it is kind of this 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 holdover from someone who came from an early vision of what Republicanism meant. You know, at odds, really, you know, uh, in his time with, you know, people like Newt Gingrich and, and others who were populist reformers, you know, uh, and, and not alone in that, of course, but just in terms of his leadership, I think he took a pretty strong stand against these uh, this rising surge of populism. And I also think he misidentified some of the threats involved, uh, meaning that, you know, if you had things to kind of do over again, I think there are people he wouldn't have opposed because he would have understood that he could work with them versus people that he, you know, ended up spending a lot of money against and then having them, you know, mostly beat him. 
in terms of his activity in, in so, the so just just race. a quick note on that so like let's talk about a couple of names that were mentioned like mike lee was running against a republican incumbent that was one of mitch mcconnell's best friends in the senate you know i mean i, I think in any party leader job you have to protect your incumbents um you know with 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 Marco, yes, I loved Marco. I was a Marco guy that cycle. But they were trying to flip a seat that was held at that time, I believe, by a Democrat. It was uh, either Bill Nelson or Bob Graham, I think. Yeah, I can't Nelson. What, um, and I think it ended up being an open seat. That side. no, it wasn't Nelson. No, uh, no, it was Nelson. It was Graham. It was Graham's seat. Yes. Um, so it was going to be an open seat, right? It was Republican leaning, but it was a state who had just had two Democratic senators. And again, I thought Marco just jumped off the, you know, if you were getting in the combine season, right, just jumped off the page with his, you know, measurables and his traits and all that kind of stuff. But if you're trying to find the path of least resistance, why not get the guy that was the statewide elected, you know, Republican governor? I mean, and any other time we'd say like, hey, that was a, a great recruiting win. And a lot of the people that you know, McConnell was was sour on were people that were like, you know, ended up being losers. Now, some of them, you know, some of these people that, that did win these races, you know, again, I, the, the you know the reconciliation or at least the working relationship between you know Rand Paul. I mean, he 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 did sort of as much as he could, kind of I think, you know, assimilate them into his his coalition. But going one last time back to the football analogy, in some ways, you know, McConnell is almost more of the, you know, sort of almost this Peyton Manning esque guy that maybe he doesn't have the strongest arm or you know is that fast, but just sees the field better than everybody. And I think the thing that frustrates people about McConnell the most is he actually understands where I think like. The middle of the country is and people are frustrated when he's like this this thing of like oh like you know this this super maximalist approach that probably wouldn't even get a majority of just republicans in congress now of course that's changing over time and the window shifts but basically saying like we're not going to vote on this to lose a bunch of guys so you can feel good and get your you know glass trophy from whatever conservative group it is in town because that's just not where the country is i think to somebody i think he was more tethered to sort of the the pulse of where the body politic at large was as opposed to Republican primary voters in super red states. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't think that we want to spend this uh, podcast relitigating all of this, but I do think that, you know, the, the unquestionably the Senate today and the population of its senators um, are uh, overwhelmingly, you know, for the under 55 set, People who are, if not anti-McConnell, uh, are certainly uh, headed in a different direction, uh, meaning that the, the Senate has moved on uh, from the, the type of approach that McConnell had. Um, and I don't mean that to say that, you know, necessarily that, that McConnell was wrong in every instance, um, though I would say that, you know, if, uh, you know, if you look back at a lot of the decisions that that were made and a lot of the money that was spent, it did seem to go you know, into, into a fire barrel and just like not produce anything. Um, it, it does seem to me that, you know, there is a, uh, that there is a new dynamic in the Senate now, uh, and that it's going to require new leadership. Uh, and you know, whatever the outcome is in November, that's going to be someone new and assuming, you know, as most Republican senators, I think, would assume at this current moment, especially given the polling in swing states across the country, that Donald Trump will be back in the White House. My question to you both is, what kind of leader do you think the Senate will want, uh, given that he will be, you know, in all likelihood, the second most prominent Republican in Washington uh, and, and, you know, have to advocate both for the interests of these 
uh, of this group of senators that has very different priorities uh, and very different moods based on when they arrived in Washington. Yeah, my only thought on that is that the the same people that the Vances of the world have pointed out, or I forget who, who it was, was it Braun, who who pointed out that the young the young Republicans all voted against the foreign aid bill. Um, the young Republicans in the Senate and the old, the old guys were the ones you know who supported it. You know what what I I think they don't understand and they're about to learn is that their whole shtick relies on having someone like Mitch McConnell in leadership that can serve as a punching bag who, to John's point, does not give a shit what you say about him. And and it won't really affect his his way of dealing with you or whether or not he supports you, whether or not his pack cuts you a big fat check. You know, and he's also, you know, procedurally from standpoint of negotiations, talking to the White House, talking to Schumer, you know, he he's a, a grown up. And I think what what Lee and Vance and that that clique don't understand is that their shtick is much more effective if their leader is that kind of guy. And so especially in the first year of a Trump presidency, if that's our assumption, when you have that little window, we've seen the last three presidents get to do one thing in their first year in office, and then it's pretty much a shit show after that. So in that first year window, you need a guy who can absolutely twist every you know lever push every button and find every dollar you know in the senate um and and use that body uh like it like a you know like a maestro on the you know tickling the ivories um and that's a very different kind of need than i think they're going to have after that window let's say trump comes in and he wants to do tax cuts and immigration um, you know, he wants to he wants to shut the border once and for all and, and, and pass out some goodies with tax policy. You're going to need uh, you're going to need a McConnell type to get that done. You're going to need one of the Johns. I mean, and I don't even know if they're up to it right after that. When when we revert to status quo politics where everybody's just doing Fox hits and nasty tweets, that's a different kind of leader. And you there you, that's where I'm talking about the houseification of the Senate. Like, you know, that's where politics is headed. That's certainly the mode of politics that MAGA likes and prefers and that their voters like, frankly. And so that calls for somebody who's not one of the Johns, but instead a kind of rhetorical firebrand who can, you know, rile up the base and say and say the thing, as John has put it so many times. So uh, that's all. That's my only thought about that. I don't have a good answer on who it actually should be. Yeah, I think, but I I think that this is one of those ones where where people misunderstand that and I'm not saying that you are here, but the people that are electing the next leader are going to be Republican senators in the same way that the people that elect the Speaker of the House, you know, is not, you know, whoever it is on Twitter that's, you know, I want Jim Jordan or Bob Good or, you know, whatever it is. It's the, you know, the majority members of, of that conference and their interests are always going to be somewhat different for, for various reasons. And it, it is frustrating. I, you know, I think that, um, you know, Speaker Johnson's probably learning this the hard way and, you know, that some of their members want these guys to be basically like, you know, sub presidents that like make the decision for us of like what we should do and then twist everybody's arm. And when the real answer is that these guys, <clears throat> you know, and ladies and, you know, Pelosi's case, they're political market makers of where can I get most of my people happy where I can assemble the votes to do it. So I, I think that, um, you know, I think 
and I don't know who's done. I mean, Cornyn has, has done that. You know, I think a guy like Tom Tillis, the North Carolina is always a, a dog fight, you know, is a guy that's, it's, that's done it. Um, you know, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that people may want something different. I think, I think somebody, and you know, Ben, you had this in your spectator column. I think somebody, maybe, maybe not him, but maybe it is him. Somebody like Tom Cotton, who's been able to have a foot in kind of both worlds in a way that's authentic that that person in being themselves and not clearly trying to be one thing for one audience or one thing for another, but the people are like kind of generally universally okay with, I think whoever that kind of Senator is, is probably the sweet spot in this. Um, you know, I think somebody, you know, maybe, maybe a Marco Rubio, maybe uh, I would love to see somebody that's, that's, you know, not on Medicare yet, just because from the standpoint of, I think that we, we need a younger, you know, political leadership class. Um, <laughs> the, the, the leader Chuck Grassley would be just fire um, mm -hmm. in so many different ways, but um, I'll take one of not on Medicare or not on Twitter. Just give me one of those two, you know, and I think we'd be <laughs> Well, but you, then then Grassley can't qualify. Believe dear dead. He's the exception. He's the exception that proves the rule. If there ever was one. If he'll sign up for a blue sky account or Threads, then I'm all in, right? Um, um, but yeah, it, it's gonna be it's gonna be wide open, and I think it's and I think the, the presidential race is gonna have something to do with it. And you know who's in the majority and who's in the minority is gonna have something. I mean, events are gonna have a lot to do with how this shakes out. Yeah. Uh, well, this is Thunderdome, and so because of that, we ne do need to shift to talking about um, the state of affairs as it relates to the 2024 presidential election. Gentlemen, I spent uh, much, much of the last week uh, down in South Carolina. I put more than 650 miles on the uh, rental car and uh, and went all over the place there and talked to a lot of people. Um, it obviously ended up being almost a carbon copy of what happened uh, in New Hampshire in terms of the performance from Nikki Haley, who closed the gap a bit based on where she was earlier in the polling uh, in order to take a, a you know a, a number of, of votes away from Donald Trump's uh, very high uh, rating early on in the, in the cycle. The late stage polling actually was pretty accurate uh, in terms of, of dictating what would end up happening. Uh, but she did end up winning in a number of, of enclaves that are exactly the kind of problem uh, focuses. Uh, that we've been predicting for candidate Trump in his second go-round, namely uh, wealthier areas, uh, suburban voters, women, uh, college-educated, non-evangelicals, et cetera. Uh, and all those votes ended up you know, going uh, really in her favor in, in a pretty significant way. Now, does this matter in the big scheme of things? It doesn't really. It, it you know, uh, I think that She'll end up, you know, in a situation where she's going to go into assuming that she, you know, comes out of Super Tuesday and decides to stay in. Um, she could, you know, potentially end up at the convention with a, a certain number of delegates that's going to be much smaller than Donald Trump's, uh, and that she'll be basically the the you know uh, break glass in case of of uh, you know legal conviction candidate. Something that perhaps became uh, far less likely given the Supreme Court's uh, uh, schedule for consideration of his immunity claims, which came out this week as well. I'm curious as to your perspective on the race as it stands at this moment. Obviously, Nikki Haley is losing. Obviously, Donald Trump is winning. Uh, but she still clearly is under his skin and irritating a lot of people and demonstrating, I think, the problem that he has going into a general election. So I put it to you this way. 
is Nikki Haley essentially just kind of a stand-in, a reminder that, hey, there's this cadre of people that I have, that I appeal to, that are within the Republican and lean R independent coalition that you're going to need to satisfy with your vice presidential pick and with your policy positions when you go into a general, meaning that she's trying to send a message, not trying to really be the candidate, the backup candidate, the way that the media has framed it. I think it's, I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think, you know, uh, you know, we have kind of collectively crafted a view of, of Haley's position that's basically correct on this podcast, which is the lottery ticket metaphor. You know, she's holding a lottery ticket on the on her way into the convention. She'll have the second most delegates. It'll probably be in the low hundreds um, and it'll be a very, very distant second. But, you know, we're talking about we're talking about acts of God, acts of man, health events, you know, acts of juries, all, all of those things that that she's thinking about. And as I've said before, she, as long as she can keep, you know, gasoline and her campaign bus. Um, if I'm her, I, I stay in the race. Now I've softened on that extreme a little bit because, you know, we've now started to see major institutional donors pull out um, and, you know, just the beginning of it. Um, but for very sort of obvious reasons that were clearly stated, we don't think she has a path. Um, and, you know, as that continues to happen, and I think a lot of it will happen after Super Tuesday, you know, you'll get a you'll get a new kind of temperature of where her campaign is, where her head is at um, and how long she stays in after that. If I were her again, as long as she has the stamina to do it and the fuel in her campaign bus stick around. But I mean, that leads to your second question, which is, yeah, she look, she's absolutely a stand in. Nobody is clamoring for Nikki Haley. She's a you know, as I put it, I think on X, she's a She's a replacement level GOP candidate. She doesn't bring you any new voters. She doesn't change the coalition. She doesn't inspire people. Nobody's a Nikki Haley Republican, really. Um, and in my view, that's a massive upgrade over the over the front runner in the race, right? So she's an absolute replacement level Republican. Um, she is a placeholder. She is a human register of discontent with Trump. And I think the last thing I'll say is, you know, the most underappreciated sort of body of voters out there is the barely the barely Trump or the barely not Trump Republican voter, because there are very few people in the Republican coalition, as we've said many times before, the people who hated Trump and the Republican Party are largely not Republicans anymore. Like the people who really hated him would never vote for him. There's a lot of people who don't like him that much but who defend him from the more ridiculous leftist attacks, you know, don't like the lawfare stuff, uh, think that the, you know, threat to democracy stuff is overcooked. And that is a very sizable chunk of Republican voters, some of whom, for some of whom he is their first choice, for a much, much bigger percentage of whom he is their second choice, as we saw in some of the exit polling in South Carolina. And for some of whom he's their, not their second choice, he's their fifth or sixth or I'll vote for the Republican, you know, nominee, but I'm not going to be happy about it if it's Trump. And those voters, you know, um, are, like I said, I think the most underrepresented and under discussed a block of voters on the Republican side. And so I think that limits the, the worry that that Haley's performance should give to say folks in the Trump campaign who are thinking about general election margins, because a lot of those voters are going to come home 
Um, and a lot of the primary, you know, and the ones who didn't come home and, you know, in these open primary states are not Republican voters by and large. Can, I would like to respond and disagree with you. If you are a suburban Nikki Haley voter and you live uh, in in Beaufort, for example, a place that uh, uh, Donald Trump won running away uh, in uh, 2016 and 2020, um, uh, but, uh, you know, has had, you know, clearly a shift away from him, you know, in the time since, and you are an upper income college educated woman who is not an evangelical. Um, and I would remind uh, our listeners that the majority of Christians in America are not evangelicals. Um, it's something that is often forgotten by the New York Times, which uses the term in- interchangeably. And your 401k right now looks really great. And you are looking at the inflation numbers in the paper of the Wall Street Journal, which you definitely subscribe to. Uh, and uh, and it's looking way better than it was a year, two years ago, uh, and your own concerns are mostly about things like border policy and crime, but your own experience with crime is really at a remove uh, because you're not near a, a, you know, a major blue city that has crime that's spilling out into the suburbs. Um, you're not as concerned about that. And you may agree with many of these heterodox thinkers um, on issues related to the campus issues related to DEI, you know, concerns that you have about the racialization of our politics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, these are all things that, that you are concerned about. Why would you make the decision to go back to the Donald Trump four years that you had before over the way things are currently going, other than, you know, potentially your concerns over Biden's age uh, and uh, concerns about Kamala's ability to replace him or the fact that you just don't want to see a, a president replaced uh, in your time cycle. Because to me, all those issues are at a remove. And if if it really is, I mean, and I still believe it is, you know, the economy's stupid. The thing is that things are things are not bad enough for you to pull the trigger to say, we need a massive turnaround from where we're headed. See, I, and I'll let John give a more broad and substantive take on this, but I, I hear you. I don't think that's wrong. My my bigger question is, is that woman you just described going to go and vote in a non-competitive Republican primary in in South Carolina? I'm, I'm not sure. I think those are general election worries for Trump. My I guess I should have said up front, I think we're going to have a lot of trouble interpreting. I know you said, Ben, that these uh, upper middle class enclaves in South Carolina that you know better than us are big red alerts for the Trump campaign. I just don't know if that's true. I think he's got he's got very familiar general election problems. I am just not convinced that primary voters, you know, the the primary vote totals that he's delivering directly translate into, you know, this is going to be a huge, huge problem for him in the general. Well, I, um, I would I would actually I would agree with you on that. I I, I don't think I mean Someone was laying out Bill Share. I think uh, you, sh- one of you, shared the thread. Maybe John, uh, the, yeah. that he was sort of running through how Nikki Haley is kind of probably on a track to end up looking like the Pat Buchanan, H. W. Bush outcome, uh, which obviously was an alert, if not a red alert, for the weakness of an incumbent candidate. 
Um, but I think that in this right. in in this case, you know, I I don't I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. What I what I basically feel like is that there is a portion of the lean R, uh, you know, Republican or independent lean R electorate that post January sixth, um, and post Dobbs, uh, and and those are for obviously very different subjects and very different reasons, uh, is is much more skeptical about a Trump re-election than they potentially were before. Um, and that if, you know, if January 6th hadn't happened, uh, or if Dobbs had not resulted in some of the things that it resulted in, or by the way, things that are being improperly blamed on Dobbs, because the Alabama IVF decision, for instance, has absolutely nothing to do with Dobbs. It's a state level law. It has a, you know nothing to do with the, the Supreme Court finding. Uh, you know, it was already something that was being adjudicated beforehand, and they didn't even cite. They mentioned Dobbs, I think, twice in the opinion, and it's not even a significant mention. So it's one of these things where the the whole kind of uh, trajectory of these uh, of these issues are ones that make them less likely to vote for Trump affirmatively and, and want to switch away from the track that things are on because you know on the flip side of this we see trump's numbers increase among black hispanic working class voters people making less than fifty thousand dollars a year people who are most directly exposed to the kind of inflation experiences uh and increased energy costs that have been hitting people's pocketbooks something that just doesn't apply to those those other groups that i mentioned yeah, I think, and Dan, maybe you meant it in a, in a primary term in, in the sense of Haley, and I think I would agree there, but in the general election, I think Nikki, and, and it goes back to you know, looking at the different maps between Donald Trump and Ron Johnson or Donald Trump and Pat Toomey, where Johnson and Toomey ran better, you know, respectively in you know suburbs of major urban areas. Um, and, you know, I know you know this, but a lot, a shitload of people live in those places, and it's going to be increasingly difficult for Republicans to win without, you know, at least holding serve and hopefully having you know, majorities in those places. I think, and look, we, we, we don't know what Nikki Haley would be like as a, you know, national candidate. I think we can take some guesses at it. I do think she has held up pretty well, you know, so far. I mean, again, it's not what the risk of her winning. And, and I don't understand why a campaign and the Trump campaign that was smart enough to avoid debate seems like that they really like just, just accept you're the presumptive nominee. And, um, but I think when you say you can look at somewhere between a quarter and 40 percent of the Republican primary electorate, and I guess, you know, in some of those states, South Carolina, um, uh, New Hampshire, where you can have independents or others you know, vote, too. But you know, there's at least a quarter of of people that are voting that just don't want to reconcile themselves to Trump. Now, do a lot of them come home? Yeah, maybe. And I think that's what comes into one of the more interesting questions this fall is who doesn't vote. Right. Is, is there a critical mass of of you know, Muslim Democrats and, you know, sort of Dearborn and Metro Detroit that sit it out because they're unhappy with you know, how Biden is handling. And and just to just to interject, uh, you know, we saw this effort uh, on the part of an organized effort in Michigan uh, to achieve a vote for uncommitted, which was their basic protest, uh, something that Rashida Tlaib voted for and spoke about. Uh, and they had hoped to get 10,000 votes. They got over 100,000 votes. So continue. John. I mean, I, 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 and I found that super underwhelming. Um, look, I mean, Barack Obama, when he was running and great, it was a little different because it was a beauty contest, but there was 11% that was uncommitted in 2012 as he was running for reelection. 
and like, sure, you know, let's, let's say we're going to, you know, when Virginia comes along, we're going to set expectation of, you know, Ben Dominich getting one vote and Dan and I vote, both vote for you. You've exceeded it by 50%, right? percent. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's if elected. You know, I will not serve. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's, 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 exp it's expectations management. And again, I, I think one of my frustrations with, with the way a lot of people look at politics is always that it's static. Well, if I do this, or, you know, or don't do this, this group of voters is going to do something. Well, okay, that's true so far as it goes, but let's say that Joe Biden comes out for a, you know, the, the cease, quote, air quotes, ceasefire um, uh, tomorrow. Well, what's that do to, you know, Jewish voters? What does it do to probably uh, some of, you know, the voters, Ben, that you were talking about, these probably college educated, you know, Republican leaning women that probably think, you know, that the Hamas rapes were like pretty bad. And like, you know, we shouldn't be, you know, allowing... don't weaponize, don't weaponize rape allegations crowd. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I, you know, for there it's, it's people need to think of politics more like a water balloon, right? That if you squeeze somewhere, something else is going to pop up. Other things are going to react. You can't just move, you know, one chess piece and the rest of the board stays exactly the same. Um, you know, and the people just sort of make moves in turn. I mean, it's something that's, you know, constantly sort of floating. I think, I can't remember if it's Sean Trendy, but it's almost like sort of like tectonic plates, just always sort of slowly moving and colliding into each other. Yeah. Um, See, but I, I think, look, I, I think that Trump is in a commanding position, but I, I, I will say if I were the Trump campaign and they seem to not heed this, you need to figure out a way to begin to reconcile the parts the the not never Trump, but the like, oh, damn it, Trump, like that wing of the Republican Party that is still Republicans, that Republicans still mean something to them. And it is some sort of center right thing or Reaganism or Bushism or even populism, but still sees themselves as fundamentally on the center, center right, the right of the American public that just don't like Trump for whatever reason to reconcile yourself to that. And having one of your main campaign guys basically shit posting against Ron DeSantis does not help. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I was, I was going to say, I, I think, John, the the uncommitted Democrats in Michigan are actually a perfect example of why we can't draw too much from these results in South Carolina and Michigan for either side. Because, you know, if you looked at turnout, I saw, I saw something on turnout in Dearborn, which, of course, the biggest Arab population in America. And it was shit. It was it was through the floor. It was nothing. And so that's open to multiple interpretations. Are these people staying home? Were, you know, or, or do, are they not really that mad because they didn't show up and vote uncommitted? Um, you know, what does that mean for the general? Exactly what you said. Yeah, that's a lot of uncommitted votes. On, on the other hand, we saw similar numbers, you know, in the Obama Hillary contest. And, you know, and, and again, what does that mean, mean about whether or not they'll come home, whether or not they will stay home? You know, the big difference between staying home and voting for Trump instead. Right. Those are two different math problems for campaigns to solve. Um, and that brings me to, to my other point, which is, you know, to what you were saying at the end there, John, is, you know, the Trump campaign seems convinced and all of American politics, at least the dominant strains of American politics, seem convinced that every election is a base election. And particularly in the Trump's case, their their theory seems to be that the other side is going to be more demoralized than our side. And that, you know, people hate Biden slightly or, you know, or hate Biden slightly more than they hate Trump or hate at least the conditions at the end of the Biden presidency. 
um, especially if uh, we see a recession at the end of this of this year in the in the third quarter of this year, and with the border crisis, you know, and so their theory is essentially this is a base election, and yeah, I don't know if they're right or wrong. I think you know th- this way of doing politics where you're just trying, you're you're maximizing for your fringe for your flank you know the left flank on the democratic in the democratic party and the right flank in the republican party and you're counting on negative partisanship and you know mute and and misery uh, you know on both sides to win very narrow um you know election majorities at which point you will get as much as you can like i said for the first year and then consign yourself to probably having one or both houses of congress flipped in the midterms mm-hmm. that's like the new blueprint and, you know, the, I, you know, it's kind of worked. It's kind of worked a little bit, you know, it, it, for both parties. So I don't know if we're going to see any any, you know, campaign leadership or any top strategists or any, you know, entrepreneurial politicians in either party return to a Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan. Let me get 60 percent of the vote and 49 states model of doing politics. I just don't know. I think the one difference, though, Dan, and this is specific how the sort of the Trump campaign is him. So actually, let's look at this friendly. Joe Biden has bent over backwards for the last four years to reconcile, reconcile himself to progressives within the Democratic Party. And, you know, I think. Well, can I interject something on that? You know, we need to understand what's been reported. You know, what's been reported publicly now and privately has been something that I think people paying attention have known for a while is that the number one thing the White House was concerned about as of two years ago was that Joe Biden was going to get a challenge from Bernie Sanders that would come at him from the left. And even to the point that, you know, as as more than one person has reported, uh, they were they essentially approached Sanders about offering him the job of labor secretary uh, to try to take him off the board um, and that he, you know, had Sanders come to the White House and pointed at a picture of of FDR and said, you got to believe me, this is the direction that I'm going. This has been their number one concern, a challenge from the left. And it's why he's gone so progressive um, and why, you know, frankly, people like Joe Manchin uh, are fed up with him and and so many others who are sort of in that you know, middle ground or thought they were getting that middle ground, Joe Biden had been surprised to see what they've seen coming out of this administration because that was their primary concern. Yeah. And I think that, uh, I, but right. So they're, they are, and again, I the whole Joe Biden is a moderate thing. We've said it a million times. Joe Biden is in the middle of the Democratic Party, wherever it is at that point in time. And his superpower is the ability to do that in a way that doesn't seem like a real, like, you know, record scratch kind of thing. Um, but, I think that the Trump campaign really needs that because I think that a good chunk, I bet, of these voters who are voting for Trump, whoever that was in Iowa or, you know, the you know for Nikki Haley with the winnowing of the field. These are people that I think a lot of them are or should be the part of, of Trump's base. There certainly would be part of the Republican base vote for literally probably almost any other candidate um, for the most part. And how do you bring them back? Um and, and I think just continuing to swipe at them and turning your you know, sort of social media, you know, goons at them is not a good way to go about it. I mean, I think it's I mean, look, we, as we saw during the, the, the speaker race, uh, you know, the House speaker race, you know, even with elected officials, they do not. Ra- you know, a lot of those people don't react well to being threatened. It may make them dig in more. So and the funny part is in all of this that it becomes more stylistic than ideological. Right. Now, in some ways, probably a lot of those 
the, the people that have been more Trump skeptical, I would suspect probably live more in the sort of Bush 43, Paul Ryan part of the world. And yeah, there are some probably more policy differences in some ways at the margins there. But as far as in the realm of the possible, you know, it's probably closer than that. But it, it ends up being more stylistic. And I guess sort of to that end, you talked earlier, Ben, about, you know, about J6 and about Dobbs. I'm kind of curious what you guys think about this as a counterfactual. If if on election day or you know the next day or the next couple of days, right? Because it took a little bit of time in 2020, Donald Trump took the loss and said, and even if he was somewhat petulant and said, look, these a bunch of these states changed their election rules, it, you know, it doesn't seem fair. I'm being cheated, but you know, this this Biden guy won. And January 6th was just a day when you know certification happened. Is Donald Trump up? I mean, is Donald Trump the overwhelming favorite for re-election, right? Or the overwhelming, you know, favorite to be returned to the White House now, shedding that baggage? I, so my view on that, it's a fascinating question, one that probably deserves a less glib answer. But I, you know me, I'm skeptical that the legal rulings against Trump have increased his support. I think it, I think they may have locked in wavering support for him i'm very skeptical they've increased support but i overall i believe in something you know you might call like the conservation of trump momentum i think whatever the fuck he does or doesn't do whatever his opponents do or do not do against him whatever trends happen or do not happen in america however events intervene there is a fixed amount of support for donald j trump it will never change in some sense, it has never changed. It was here before any of us were born, and it'll be here long after all of us die. <laughs> and I think the the variable is what his opponent is able to do. I think he is the rock of fucking Gibraltar. Sorry for all the f bombs. <laughs> and what matters what matters is the waves crashing around him, and um, you know, the, and and whether the ship can navigate the strait, right? You know, his opponent. So, so you know, I won't, won't torture that metaphor any further. But I'll just say it's like it's always been about who he's running against. It's, ne it's never about Trump. He'll have the same support no matter what. That's that's my snap reaction to it, based on like my priors. But I do think it's a very interesting question because I could see arguments for either side. So I uh, I I think that actually, uh, John, it, I would completely say that in the absence of January sixth, he would be the odds-on favorite. I, I just think, I think that that had had an effect, and you know uh, how measurable that is is questionable, and how you answer the question. But uh, you know, it, it cemented in some people's minds a version of chaos that I think, honestly, in twenty two would have led to a larger Republican majority in in a lot of ways. Um, but that's something that you know is again a counterfactual. Um, oh, and, hey, and, hey, breaking breaking news, real quick. Uh, you know, being reported now by. Uh... Uh, Burgess Everett over at Politico that uh, Trump is encouraging NRSC chair Danes to run for GOP leader per person from that is that is uh, not surprising to me at all, um, and I think that we will see how much the Senate wants to have someone different but still Trump adjacent in that role uh, in in the coming months. One last point to you, gentlemen, because uh, I would be. It would be, uh, you know, uh, not worthy of our listenership to not point this out. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy is now on the ballot, not just in Utah, but in Georgia and in Arizona. And after his last event in Michigan, it looks like he will be on the ballot there 
as well in short order. He has uh, he's about two thousand signatures short, uh, if they, I believe, and he has uh, more than four months to make that up. So and Ben, did you know that the F in Robert F Kennedy stands for Friedrich Hayek? <laughs> you endorse Rand Paul for leader, I guess. Yeah, Rand Paul, he's, he's showing up at libertarian conventions. He's a new man. Well, it's it, look. I'm just telling you, people people act like this stuff doesn't matter, and then Ralph Nader comes along and screws everything up for everybody. And and you know the fact is that that RFK is now on the ballot in a number of key swing states uh that that actually do matter and i think that that number is only going to increase and i think in the absence of a no labels movement of any significance um with joe manchin's announcement uh that this is now going to be the the number one spoiler conversation and uh it's it's gonna it, it's gonna be interesting to watch what happens uh but i just uh, do not underestimate the spoiler factor you know, and I'm not saying that you know sure. a bunch of a bunch of Gaza Muslim people in in uh, in Michigan are going to come out and vote for RFK. I don't think they're going to do that uh, at all, give, especially given his Israel uh, position. But I do think that the, an election that is as hinged on so many narrow finishes uh, in key states, uh, the more states that he adds to his list, the more likely something like that becomes a very real possibility. So. Oh, I think I don't get, I think he's a huge spoiler, but I would we agree, boys, that the way I've been looking at it, and I was unsure about this six months ago when we had the same conversation, but the way I've been looking at it is RFK is a killer for Trump, pretty clearly, and no labels is a killer for Biden. Um, just the way, and that's given the sort of where the odds are distributed on who would be on a no labels ticket there. I mean, there are some people who could run yeah. on a no labels ticket that I think would be worse for Trump, but most of the people who could run would be much worse for Biden. I mean, do we agree basically that RFK insofar as he's a killer? I think he's a Trump killer. I certainly think that he's, I think given the map, he's a Trump killer, meaning like the, the, the people likeliest to vote for him in a state like Arizona or, or Georgia are not people who are going to be pulled to him from Biden. You know, and that I think is going to be exactly, uh, and that's going to factor into, I think, Trump's, uh, you know, potentially VP pick. Um, I don't know that he goes in kind of a like, does he go in a safe direction or, uh, or a, or a riskier direction trying to win those people back to his side? You know, we talked about, you know, do one thing I would be really interested in is of the people who voted for Nikki Haley in South Carolina in those various suburbs. Does adding Tim Scott to the ticket get them back in the Republican lane? Not to say that that's even something that you need because he'll obviously win South Carolina. But what is what does that mean for similar populations in North Carolina, for instance? You know, what does that mean for similar populations in Georgia? Um, I, I don't know. I, I think that's still something we have to figure out. So, yeah. um, gentlemen, uh, thank you so much uh, for Dan, for John. Uh, I'm Ben Dominic. You've been listening to. Thunderdome brought to you by The Spectator. You can go to thespectator.com, sign up for all of our newsletters and for our magazine. Uh, I have uh, a an article in the uh, currently mailing out issue uh, on Trump's foreign policy in the second term that I hope you'll all check out. Uh, and uh, I encourage you to subscribe to it. It is a a, a fantastic dead tree uh, publication and uh, and well worth your time. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with more to continue to cover this crazy 2024 election. <laughs>